Hello, and welcome to Eyewitness Beauty, the podcast where we talk about the biggest stories in the beauty industry each week. I'm Nick Axelrod Welk, as in my husband's last name, not an abbreviation for welcome. And I'm Annie Creekbaum. Nick. Yeah. Oh, Nick. <laughs> hi, how, hi. <laughs> how are you this week? Good. I have three things that I really want to talk about. Okay. One, two are sort of more on the confessional end of the spectrum, and then one is more arts and culture. I'm here for you. And we don't really have like a sort of hybrid music for it. But anyway, my confession, I got what is called a DEXA scan this week, which is the most accurate scan you can do for like body fat and bone density. Mm -hmm. You basically lie down. It's like similar to an MRI, but less radiation. It's the same amount of radiation as eating four bananas. And I am... 23.5% body fat, which means that I am a quarter fat. I don't think you look a percentage over 20. (laughs) (laughs) Um, This was a horrible, you know, bit of news to get. And so I'm working through that. I mean, like, uh, I guess. Can you put that in context? Yeah. I mean, elite athletes, I guess, are under 10% body fat. Someone who is fit is between, uh, this is for men, elite athletes would be like under 10, maybe like around eight or five if you're like a crazy uh, professional athlete. Mm-hmm. Like 10 to 15 is like, you know, super fit. Mm-hmm. And 15 to 20 is like pretty fit. And then 20, 25 is like average. So you're average. Yeah, that's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> Nick, you're pregnant. I know. I'm eating for two. So I'm working on that, and I'm going to have more updates on how I'm going to sort of tackle that one. Um, My second confession is I'm back on TikTok. I I deleted it. Like, it was sort of my obsession for, like, the first half of quarantine. I deleted it because I was like, you know, I don't want China to, like, know my tastes, I guess, and spy on my phone. Yeah, we only want American companies spying on Yeah, like if they're, yeah, exactly. And then when they said, when I read a report that Trump was going to like ban downloads after like this past Sunday or something, I downloaded it again quickly just to make sure In I had it. <laughs> In a fit of rebellion. In a fit of rebellion. And I, it, it like got me way, it got me in. It got, I'm back in. Really? It's just, it's. I can't describe how so how much different it is from Instagram other than that like it's much more like narrative like there's much more of a narrative arc to like the content so like people tell a story much more than they do on Instagram. Instagram, you know, yes they have video but it's much more of a static medium. TikTok is all about storytelling and like creativity in a funny way like you know the algorithm is really good and so the more you like things of a certain genre the more you'll get served that kind of content so i'm like getting a lot of musical theater content of like young kids across the country i didn't realize um, that you were a musical theater. i like love musical theater what i mean like i i you know i didn't know tell me well i was asked to be the understudy for Oliver in like our local summer stock theaters production of Oliver, but that was too much pressure for me. So I asked if I could just be in like the chorus. And then one time in camp, I was actually Oliver and I used to have a video of it. Annie, 
<laughs> Imagine the gayest <laughs> kid you've ever seen, hands a flailing, like <laughs> hips a swaying. It was out of control. Like, I was like, is this like <laughs> America's next top? drag orphan <laughs> like it was so embarrassing um i used i can't find the video for the life of me it was at this camp called island lake camp and yeah i was made fun of a lot in public school the last thing i want to mention is an absolutely ridiculous television show that just came on netflix which is called the home edit oh i had to turn it off it is basically, from what I can understand and what I can tell, these two people who come in to like a celebrity's house. Two women that also are like best friends. I guess they're best friends. And they like basically take their, like they take the celebrity's clothes and like hang them up. The and one like that buy I some, saw. <laughs> they yeah. buy some like acrylic boxes from like the container store and then like write like shoes on it and like put the shoes on it. The one, the episode that I, I think it was the first episode they had, they went to Reese Witherspoon's home in Nashville and yeah. she had all of her legally blonde, I was going to say paraphernalia. Yeah. <laughs> That's the right her, word. Like, all of her, yeah. Her costumes yeah, yeah. and all that. Her costumes and like all those props. They had to organize it and like archive it for her. But, but then when you like, see the before like, and after, all they did was like literally just buy some stuff at the container store, like, and hang it up. And like write like legally blonde and you know big little lies. I think you. I think you're um, overestimating people's like taste level in content. And, like, but like if I, but I did see like a viral tweet that that showed like the before and after <laughs> of like the closet, and it's like literally just like there's like a label <laughs> is the only difference between or it's like it's color coordinated. I'm like, how is this a TV show? That reminds me of like growing up, like the one time a month that I would clean my room and then I would make my mom walk back with me so I could just be like, to show her. Like, so what do I get? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's what I have. Annie, anything interesting going on in your life right now? Are you kidding me? No. I Not mean, a single thing? Well, you know, I've just been so busy with work, so busy. And I've had a lot of really interesting conversations with really interesting people. I will say that. Work related or or not? Yeah, work related. Um, all on Zoom. You're so uh, cagey about this work you've been doing. When will we be able to know a little bit more? I'm not trying to be cagey. I'm just trying to, I guess, be respectful of everybody else that's involved, you know, and respect the process, right? So probably like early next year. I guess like by the time that there's a vaccine, we might get a little bit more information about your business. Should we do top stories? Let's do it. This week, a consumer VC fund called Able Partners has announced that one of their portfolio companies called Compass Pathways is using the active ingredient in magic mushrooms, uh, psilocybin, silent P, if anyone's wondering, to develop a new model for drug-assisted psychotherapy. So magic mushrooms for depression and psychotherapy. So similar to the ketamine, like the use of ketamine for this kind of uh, drug-resistant depression, Compass Pathways is exploring ways in which they can use the active ingredient in mushrooms to help people. Yeah, it reacts with your serotonin 2A receptor, 
which we all know has to do with feeling happy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Have you tried magic? You, you've tried magic mushrooms. I've tried mushrooms. I'm not. I'm more of like an upper guy than a than a psychedelic or downer guy. So like mushrooms are not really my thing. Got it. We should mention, though, that the idea of therapeutic psychedelics is using these drugs in the care of a trained clinician, usually a a doctor for therapeutic, obviously not fun reasons. And uh, the dosages are much more mild. So it's it's either micro dosing, which is taking a very small amount for like several days a week and it, there's different ways of doing microdosing. it's either like a you know every day for a month and then a month off or every day for a week and then a day off like there's different ways of doing it but it's basically creating i think the goal is to create new neural pathways right something like that yeah um and also <laughs> <laughs> also also the treatment is along with talk therapy as well so it's not a silver bullet just the thing that i found the most interesting about this article is it's coming from a vc fund so they give all these points around um they call this section what got us excited about therapeutic psychedelics and they just put it in really like um uh, capitalistic terms like they talk about the size of the opportunity they're like billions of people are depressed millions sorry fact check myself there but then they talk about the drawbacks of being invested in the industry which is that people might get cured too quickly so customers don't really come back for more products <laughs> so they highlight that as a risk of getting involved <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, this is the way that like these companies are funded and that if you are investing in them, you have to think about like, how are, how are you going to find new customers? You know, they call it the LTV, the lifetime value of a customer. So -hmm. if they're only going to come back once, then they have a low lifetime value, right? And then you have to think about like, okay, then how is the business making money? And how is the business constantly finding new customers? I have an idea. I think that they should start a production company and produce Casey Affleck movies. I just remember that movie where he's like his he like he's a dad and he like starts the fire and his son and his wife so basically just like really depressing movies that make people yeah sad yeah I mean that's one idea I mean I think the interesting thing here just that that we've talked about before Manchester by the sea Manchester by the sea is that like for a lot of people. SSRIs, which are the most common class of depression drugs like Prozac, Zoloft, Lexapro, etc., aren't as effective as we once thought they were. They're not the silver bullet that we once thought they were. Between 40 and 60% of patients fail to improve on their first one, so they'll have to like oftentimes switch drugs and try mm-hmm. things which can take a you know half a year. Mm-hmm. They can start to lose efficacy over time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think... And they have side like, effects. Yeah, like sexual side effects, um, other weight gain sometimes in certain ones, all those sort of things. And so I think what scientists are doing is trying to figure out what are the other ways we can approach treatment of depression that we can, you know, heal brains, essentially. And what the studies over the last few years have shown is that psilocybin therapy has provided rapid reductions in depression symptoms after a single high dose. We also talked to Dr. Meisner, our ketamine expert, who was saying that they're reviewing ketamine as a, a acute suicidality cure or like treatment, meaning that if you're acutely suicidal and you take a dose of ketamine, you will become less suicidal, which is super interesting. So we're going to continue to monitor this space. It's interesting that venture capitalists like Able Partners who have invested in brands like Moon Juice and Daily Harvest 
um, and other sort of wellness brands, also necessary, I should say, disclaimer. It's interesting that they're going into the psychedelic space. Definitely. In related news, U.S. cases of depression have tripled during COVID-19 pandemic, which Dr. Meisner, as you mentioned earlier, he predicted. He called this, yeah. Yeah. The the statistic here is that 27.8% of U.S. adults are reporting symptoms of depression right now. And that's up from 8.5% before the pandemic. So it's a huge, huge increase. And it's across all demographic groups. We're actually working on an episode that should go live either next week or the week after um, that we'll be talking about how, you know, there's a rise in trauma and how, you know, the pandemic for the black community, a lot of the brutality, the police brutality against black people is creating trauma and how it's sort of manifesting in the community post COVID and what will sort of, what what do we do about it? So that's to come. Louis Vuitton. One of our favorite indie brands <laughs> is introducing a monogram face shield. So it's a full-on face protective visor that is clear. It's called they're calling it a shield and a photochromatic it's visor. Photochromatic, that, like transition lenses. So basically, like if you step out into the sun, not only does it protect you against the respiratory particles that transmit the COVID nineteen virus, but it also protects you from the sun because it'll darken. <laughs> My favorite thing is a quote from the brand in this uh, town and country mag article that you sent me that says they promise to add, quote, a discreet yet sophisticated touch to one's personal protection. (laughs) It's PPE for the 1%. (laughs) It's Uh, not discreet. And And it's not sophisticated. (laughs) Come on. This is also from the article in town and country. Contrary to reports that the LV shield would retail for $1,000. Louis Vuitton said that they haven't confirmed the price yet. Are they going to give them away free to healthcare workers? That's the only way to do this. Something tells me they will not. Oh. But uh, they uh, they come out in October for those who want to get their hands on them. Alicia Keys' new brand has been... More details have emerged. And I am no more... <laughs> I wouldn't I'm, call them details. <laughs> I'm no clearer on what the fuck this is. I love Alicia Keys. I love what she stands for. I think uh, I'm going to read you a little bit about um, what the brand will be. And then I'm going to ask you to tell me what it actually means. It's a new lifestyle beauty brand that aims to share the soul of self-care and skincare through content, conversation, and community. According to Alicia, there are four keys to soul care, body, spirit, mind, and connection, which represent our physical, spiritual, mental, and social selves and work together to unlock our inner light so that we can be more radiant. Based on Alicia's belief in the power of our collective action, she is calling on a community of quote-unquote light workers, individuals who collectively use their voices and platforms to spread light and positivity. The website launches on September 29th, and there'll be a weekly n- email newsletter. And what are they act- what is she- what are they selling? You ask. The first launch includes a candle that's a blend of sage and oat milk, and then two skincare products. And I'm like exhausted just trying to like talk about this. You know what um, this sounds like? This sounds like a meeting where they had everyone in the team in a room around a table and they gave everybody note cards and they were like, write down one word that comes to mind 
when you think of this brand that we're trying to build or like the possibilities here. And then they threw them all in a bag. They're like connection. And yeah. And then they threw them all in a bag and like stirred it around and then dumped it all out. And then they created that press release you just read. I To me, it, it also smacks a little bit of like nobody saying no to Alicia Keys and that like, they're like, what, what are you talking about? Like, what, what, what are these products? Like, what are the tenants of the brand? Like, I think it all stands, like what it stands for is all great stuff, but expressing them, you know, like, how do you go from those tenants to like a candle and skincare? Like where, you know, like, I guess, you know what? It remains to be seen. Sometimes for me, the leap between the philosophy, philosophy and the add to cart button is quite a, quite a huge gap. So really tapping into these like kind of terms like community and spirituality and self-care. And then my candle is eighteen ninety nine um, free shipping. It's just like, like it's said, hard. It's hard. But it's called Keys Soul Care. And it launches September 29th. The website launches September 29th. And it's in collaboration with Elf Cosmetics. Correct. Another new brand with details just emerging is, you know, we haven't heard from Jenna Lyons since she exited J. Crew several years ago. She's been apparently cooking up a beauty company that is starting with false eyelashes. She's launching it with this brand with a makeup artist who she worked with for a very long time. And the reason why they're starting with eyelashes is because she actually has a disorder in which she doesn't have eyelashes. Um, So she's always used fake eyelashes whenever she's like done herself up. And uh, that's happening. I mean, it's live. You can go and shop them now. There's a lot. It's a strip lash company. They're adhesive. You glue them on. They come in shades of brown and black. I guess, look, like in a nutshell, it's like a more natural looking fake lash company. It's like for the for the girl who doesn't relate to Lily Lashes, Lily Galici of uh, Shaws you know, of Sunset fame. Lily Galici, everyone's <laughs> favorite. <laughs> no, but it's it's for the it's for the more sort of like no makeup makeup kind of girl who still wants a little bit of oomph. I mean, Jenna Lyons has an incredible style and is a very cool person. So I can't imagine the brand will stop with just lashes. It remains to be love scene. True story about fake lashes is their tagline. So Gwyneth Paltrow, back at it again. Gwyneth Paltrow making beauty headlines again, this time for a new partnership she has, what do they call it, inked? With Xeomin, which is a basically like a new type of Botox, and she's the new face of Xeomin. And Botox, as we all know, is botulism toxin. Xeomin is like, I guess, what, what they're calling a cleaner version of Botox. So it is uniquely purified, according to Gwyneth Paltrow's sponsored post, and it does not contain any, quote, unnecessary proteins. And uh, what I think is interesting about this story is not only, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow can kind of do whatever she wants in terms of her endorsements because she's Gwyneth Paltrow, but she was called out by a lot of her fans and her commenters basically talking about, 
you know, her entire brand has been about non-toxic this and non-toxic that and toxins and releasing toxins. And there may be toxins in your child's baby food in her blog. All that stuff. And now she's literally endorsing injecting toxins into your face. Literal, actual toxins. (laughs) The (laughs) only kind of toxin, really, not just the marketing term. There's actually a surgical doctor from England named Dr. Joshua Woolrich. And he commented on Gwyneth's Xeomin post. The hypocrisy is outstanding. You yell about the supposed danger of toxins for years, and now you inject them into your face because you're being paid to do so by a brand? What a joke. This is the same as Botox. Both have the same potential risks. Neither one is more purified than the other, and no one should be shamed for choosing the one you don't promote. Agree. Also, I have a problem with how they're describing it and how they're marketing it. Their definition of purified means that they, I guess, like process it in such a way that, quote unquote, isolates the therapeutic component of the molecule and removes the accessory proteins that don't play an active role in treatment. Then they immediately follow it because I think legally they have to. Studies have not been performed to determine whether the presence or absence of these accessory proteins have a long term effect on safety or efficacy. So they're calling their own bullshit here. It's like, to me, that sounds like it's like chicken broth with no chunks of chicken in it. And that just sounds boring as fuck. (laughs) I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, I... uh, Not a lot of substance. Not a lot of substance. I think it sends a mixed message. And if you, and one of the commenters I saw had pointed out that Gwyneth, like literally three posts before, posted a shot of her top shelf and says, I think pretty much everything in my medicine cabinet is non-toxic and clean by our standards at Goop. We work really hard to make and curate products that really work and are better for you. So their standards at Goop are whether or not they can sell it? I just don't understand, you know, like, uh, yeah. I don't understand how we're ever going to get an advertiser. (laughs) (laughs) No, we love Goop. And actually, um, the scrub, the instant facial is incredible. Um, I can't wait to try Xeomin. But the, yeah, um, I'm a Xeomin guy. Hashtag Xeomin guy. Convinced. Um, But I think uh, the problem is just sort of speaking out of both sides of your mouth in 2020 doesn't really work. But you know what? She's laughing all the way to the bank. This is a brief, uh, a brief little tidbit. It was actually a blind item sent in by a friend of the pod, Emily Doherty, the former beauty director of Elle magazine and the former editor-in-chief of New Beauty. She sent in a blind item which basically explained that there are Uh, several beauty influencers, among them a very controversial makeup influencer, who are basically getting into a deal with a Swedish company that wants to expand their chip implants throughout the world. So these are like chips that you put into, you know, that are implanted into your finger, I believe, uh, microchips, and they're going global and using this beauty influencer as a spokesperson, I guess. Um, They're going to pay influencers around the world, not only a flat rate, but also bonuses for every thousand people that get implants. They know that young people will be the most accepting of the message, which is why they've targeted influencers who have shown that they can get people to buy and do what they are asked. It is the end of the world, says this blind item. So we actually reached out to the founder of a Swedish chip company. We don't know if it is the Swedish chip company, and we are currently working on getting them on the pod. So we want to understand sort of what are the potential applications in the beauty industry for chips, or is it just, you know, using their audience to sort of spread awareness? Yeah, I don't know about the beauty industry in in 
particular, but after reading the Vice article you had sent me about microchipping in uh, Sweden, it sounds like just like the chip in your credit card where you can swipe and pay and get a like keypad into your office and things like that. <laughs> like that's yeah. the idea with this like implanted microchip. I'm not. I'm not. No, I don't need to be. I don't know. That's like over convenient. Really, I would rather not carry around a wallet. What about your phone? You can do everything with your phone now. What are you, you going to? We're not going to need our phones soon. We're just going to be able to think things and like <laughs> think, call people. What if our podcast was just? I all swear, dotted out. <laughs> I swear to God that whenever I'm thinking, I need to uh, search for my calculator on my phone. It becomes one of the most recently used applications. It just knows when I want to use my calculator. Mm. Anyway, mm. China, as in the country. As in the global superpower, the influencer, the global influencer China, has announced that they are aiming to be carbon neutral by 2060. That's huge, That's and huge. it's huge for the beauty industry too. Any consumer product industry, because all of our stuff, all of these things, all of this manufacturing happens mostly in China. And right now, they're the top consumer of fossil fuels and all those things that we are trying not to use anymore. Coal would be another one that we canceled. And yeah, it's a huge undertaking, but if anybody can do it, it's China. In the article, one of the analysts said that it could take $5.5 trillion to reach this goal. That's like nothing to China. It would be a pretty amazing bar to set, you know, Obviously. Well, it's crazy because you know who China's still in the Paris Agreement. The U.S. is not in, backed out. Thanks, Trump. So it's like I, I feel like a little bit of it is China kind of like giving the middle finger to Trump. Yeah. Which we love. Plus one for China. <laughs> this is breaking fucking news. 15 minutes ago, Lisa Rinna, the villain of the most recent season of The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, posted an Instagram saying that Rinna Beauty, rinnabeauty.com, it's finally here. It is created by the lip pioneer herself, Lisa Rinna. Chic, sexy, bold, no tricks, coming soon, clean beauty, cruelty-free, vegan, rinnabeauty.com. The, again, the woman with the lip implants. So be the first to know. Right now, all you can do is sign up for an email list, which I'm doing as I report this to you all. And hopefully next week we'll have a little bit more details to share, but I just wanted to give you that breaking news while we record announcement. So Annie and I were super excited this week to Zoom sit down with Mega Rajagopalan, who is a reporter at BuzzFeed News. But besides that, she's also just an award-winning international correspondent. She is based in London, but she grew up in the States. She's reported on China and Thailand, and also in Israel and the Palestinian territories. And before that, she was a political correspondent for Reuters in China. She is basically one of the foremost young human rights and international relations journalists she wrote a story uh, and a series of stories for BuzzFeed News about the hypocrisy of a lot of beauty corporations who have been you know, supporting the Black Lives Matter movement in the United States while at the same time continuing to sell and even continuing to market their skin lightening, not only products, but brands, you know, Fair and Lovely, 
all these white radiance light perfecting essences, like all these things that are basically just skin lighteners. And, you know, in our conversation with Mega, it becomes clear that, you know, not only are these products just sort of helping with hyperpigmentation, obviously, but, you know, they're in reinforcing this idea that like lighter skin is better, is something to be prized and valued and is sort of like the ideal beauty standard in countries where white and light skin is not the norm. So we were super excited to talk to Mega from London about this issue and and sort of what she found that beauty companies were willing to cop to, what they sort of weren't, and sort of what else her research has uncovered. Was it a tip you got for the article you wrote for BuzzFeed or how did you get involved? You know, you just said that your uh, your expertise is in human rights reporting, not necessarily in beauty reporting. So how did you come up with the story you wrote? So for a long time, I had wanted to do a piece on skin whitening products because I had sort of, in a way, I had grown up around these products. I always felt a bit miffed by their existence a little bit because, of course, it does send the message that lighter skin is is more attractive and will gain you all kinds of you know social advancement and um, other kinds of favors like that. So I had had it in my mind that I wanted to do a story, but in the news business, you kind of want to have um, like a peg, we would call it. So like you want it to feel timely in some way. You want the reader to understand why they're reading about this now. And it's never been a particularly newsy subject. So it was, um, I kind of always had it in the back of my mind. And then when Black Lives Matter came back into the news and all the demonstrations were happening, I was sitting around on Instagram, like with my partner one night, and we were just like, like, I think one of us had followed some beauty brands and we started noticing that these beauty brands were hashtagging Black Lives Matter. And uh, my partner who had lived in Dubai for a long time was like, oh man, like, but these people sell, these brands are selling skin whitening products in other markets, like where there are a lot more consumers with darker skin tones. Um, so it's really strange to see them say, like sing that they support Black Lives Matter and that they want to promote inclusivity within their customer bases. But at the same time, when it comes to other markets, they're, uh, they're sending a message that is, you know, is kind of a contrast. So I was like, you know, this, this would be interesting to do a story kind of exploring the contrast between these two kinds of messages, like one in the global South and then the other in kind of the US and Europe. You know, I guess as a journalist, I remember learning early on that you're not supposed to ask a question you don't already know the answer to. Um, <laughs> but were there were there any questions you had asked in the reporting of the story that gave you answers you were surprised to find? Yeah, I mean, I I quite often actually ask questions that I don't know the answer to. Um, and <laughs> so maybe I got bad. I got maybe I got bad. Uh, Nick just advice. wants to make his life easier. <laughs> I think for the like for the first piece that I wrote, it was it was a little bit different. It wasn't like an investigation. Like I was sort of coming to this as, you know, this was a phenomenon that was happening on plain sight. It was a difference in brand messaging that anyone with social media could see. So there weren't that many questions to be asked, right? Like it was just sort of like, like, because like, you know, making skin whitening cosmetics, as long as they don't 
contain agents that are deemed harmful by the FDA and other regulators is not really something that companies feel the need to do in secret. You know, they want to promote these products. They want to say exactly what these products do. So it was easy to sort of find that stuff out. What about the response from Olay's spokesperson who said, quote, how each person defines beauty as a choice. For example, some may like using tanners or makeup to achieve a darker skin tone, while others are looking to even darker spots and preserve their natural skin tone. In Asia, where these products are predominantly sold, many people describe their skin tone as quote-unquote yellowing as they age and are seeking products to help restore their natural skin tone. Did that sort of official company response, how did that hit you? Yeah, I mean, as someone who's coming to this not as a, a beauty reporter, I was pretty shocked by that response. I was really surprised. It was interesting that they chose to frame it through this kind of uh, lens of individual choice or personal choice, kind of comparing it to tanning. But to me, like having spoken to all of these academics and other experts who have studied the history of skin whitening and the kind of social impacts of skin whitening, it was, it seemed very strange to me that this company that has invested so much money in developing these product lines would still frame it as through this narrative of individual choice, when clearly there is something that's like far more complex happening here in terms of the incentives to lighten your skin, you know, that is not happening clearly with tanning. Do you know, in your research, is the conversation around skin whitening, did that already exist in some of these cultures or parts in the world without the influence of colonialism? Or did you find in talking to all these experts that understand the history more and all the nuances around it? Is it is that like not the case? And it is really due to this Western beauty ideals coming in? Yeah, I mean, I think it's hard to pick apart because, you know, there were no TV ads before colonialism, right? Like there were no, uh, but like, you know, like if you think about a company like Fair and Lovely, which is sort of like the OG skin whitening company in India and other parts of South Asia, they are owned by Unilever now. Unilever, I believe, is now rebranding it as Glow and Lovely um, to take out the word fair, which of course in that part of the world means fair skinned, right? How do you feel about that? Just like changing the marketing term. It's like, yeah, I still think it's understood that it has the same meaning. Is that yeah. even? I mean, it's it's reflective of the fact that because Fair and Lovely is like the the original brand, like it has faced the most scrutiny, the most pushback, like dating back decades and decades in India, like activists for lower caste people, for people with darker skin tones have like specifically gone after Fair and Lovely to the point where like that pressure, they clearly like they did, they didn't want it anymore. So they, they've now tried to rebrand it. But the thing is like, if you're a consumer, you still have all of the same incentives to lighten your skin. And you, that brand has been around for so long that I kind of doubt that consumers will be differentiating it just because it doesn't have the word fair in the name. But I still think it's, you know, it's when you take out these words like fairness and whiteness as something with a positive connotation for skincare, it's still like moving in a direction where you're not setting up fairness as a desirable thing versus dark skin, right? So that's, it's still a meaningful change to me. It's just probably not as far as most of the activists that I've talked to would want it to go, I guess. But to your original question about like the kind of like links between skin whitening and colonialism, most of the experts that I spoke to in the U.S have followed these issues would say that this is like there's like a direct kind of cause and effect with colonialism and 
I can't speak like globally, but just like purely in the South Asian context, I think that's clearly true because of not just in terms of personal perception and stuff like that, but because of the very real economic and social privileges that were awarded to people with lighter skin tones, you know, things like better choices in the arranged marriage system where lighter skin tones are highly privileged, you know, the ability to apply for and attain certain kind of choice positions, you know, kind of social privileges. All of these things are linked to lighter skin. I'm definitely not any kind of expert in the West African context, but it's my understanding that the the kind of colonial legacy in that part of the world has led to a lot of similar incentives. So like whether the desire for light skin predates colonialism, like it, it may do, but I think like the kind of the incentive structure that privileges light skin arose as a direct consequence of colonialism. It's funny you mentioned arranged marriage because one of the quote unquote pegs for, you know, this conversation that we wanted to talk about with you was the popularity of Indian matchmaking on Netflix. Oh my goodness, yes. <laughs> and it's funny, I just, you know, I plugged in racism, Indian matchmaking on Google and the headlines kind of uh, are really interesting and, and sort of run the gamut from this is great or, you know, so f- For example, Cosmopolitan says, Indian matchmaking criticism should only come from brown people. Uh, (laughs) Time Magazine says, Indian matchmaking, is the Netflix show harmful or helpful? And then uh, the Kalish Times says, Indian matchmaking is racist, elitist, and sexist. And then CNN says, all of you haters of Indian matchmaking only prove its point. So obviously, it it was a controversial series that even as a white person, Caucasian person watching it, you know, I was kind of taken aback at the casual handling of words like fair and white and like, oh, like as a as a positive in 2020 on television. Like it seemed like just the the kind of thing that was so uh, it wasn't even secret or it wasn't even yeah. hidden. Did it surprise you that that was the way that people were talking about, you know, potential I mean, uh, partners? No. No, not at all. Because well, I'm I'm South Asian by heritage. I'm Indian by heritage, right? So like, it didn't surprise me at all. Because I know that these are how like, if you go on some, you know, arranged marriage, like websites and stuff like that, that are used by Indians, you will sometimes see people saying like, Oh, fair skin, we're looking for someone who's fair skin, like this is like quite uh, a mainstream thing, right? Like, however, right or wrong, we may think it is. So it didn't necessarily surprise me. I think the reason that it got the kind of backlash it did is because like of the context of the show. So like you're talking about a show about Indian arranged marriage that's on Netflix, right? So it's like you have all of these people in the West that this is like their first exposure to this part of Indian culture. They have no context for it. And they're coming to it fresh in the form of this like kind of trashy reality show. Like it's not like it's a documentary, right? It's like, it's kind of like, Um, the kind of thing you would binge or something like that. So then you have Indians and like kind of like diaspora South Asians that are like really annoyed that like people from outside of these cultures, this is like their first kind of impression of it. And there's so much about it that is deeply problematic and that Netflix didn't really contextualize, right? Like you see like Auntie Seema, I guess that was her name, right? Um, Talking about fair skin as if as if this is you know a normal thing to ask about in a partner and there's sort of like 
they they don't really explain like what like why is it that people think fair skin is good like why is it that people come from these cultures and you know they want to partner with fair skin so i think it would have been better if like there had been some pushback within the show or if there had been like more information given in some way but uh sadly it wasn't the case i think with guilty pleasure viewing but it's it's interesting though because the conversation around skin lightening products and marketing in these regions is very much related to how it then plays out in dating, right? So mm. like you see all of these ads for fair and lovely, whitening, brightening, you know, like all these these sort of like words that are that ascribe a value to lighter skin. And then you see how it then plays, you know, it's sort of like the symbiotic relationship between the two sort of trends. Yeah, for sure. My other question for you was, do you think changing the names of these products as opposed to banning them outright will actually, you know, make a difference in the way that sort of your reporting showed that, you know, these are deeply problematic products is rebranding enough. It's hard because all of this stuff exists on a spectrum. Like if you think about the kind of very harmful extreme of skin whitening products, like products that contain mercury, contain bleaching agents, like things that are genuinely harmful to your skin, that stuff is already banned in many countries, right? Including the US, several countries in West Africa have banned these products, I think within the last few years. And initially, this was hailed, of course, as a good thing because they're harmful. But I spoke to one scholar in the U.S. who pointed out that banning the products, actually, what it ended up doing was that it created this underground market for these products. And so you would have these classes of people who were not like not wealthy enough to be buying international brands, but they still wanted to lighten their skin because these social incentives still exist. Right. So they would go and buy the black market products and then there would still be harm done because the demand was still there. So I think it's a complex question because even eliminating the products themselves is not eliminating demand, right? It's like, it's a kind of big social problem. So I guess like how I would answer that is I don't think changing the branding is necessarily sufficient to address all of these problems, but I don't even know like what steps could be taken to... Um, yeah, I was going to say like, yeah. what could what could the beauty industry, you know, the beauty industry is a humongous you know, yeah. obviously a humongous industry, a very powerful force in business and socioeconomics. Are there things, you know, that the beauty industry could do itself to yeah. to help undo the harm that it has done in these areas? I mean, there are some very easy steps. Like they should just engage better with some of the stakeholders here that have been pointing out the issues with fairness creams for a really long time. Like these groups have existed pretty much everywhere that fairness creams are sold for decades now, and they're not being listened to by the beauty Ad, industry. Like advocacy, advocacy groups? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, like anti- anti-colorism groups, skin health groups, academics, like all of these people have been talking about these issues of colorism and how the beauty industry reinforces it. That's one thing. And then the other thing I would say is like a big part of this problem is not necessarily the products themselves, but in, in maybe in addition to the products themselves, it's that it's the kind of like models and actors that they hire. And I wrote about this in this kind of follow up that I did in Sri Lanka 
it was really interesting talking to people in the modeling world there because they talked about, I talked to people who were both dark skinned and light skinned and both of these groups faced incredible, like different, but like very strong pressure in their careers to basically to endorse skin whiteners. And for people who were dark skinned, it was, it was sort of the opposite. Like they felt like they were cut off from like this huge segment of the industry because skin whitening was like like, such an important. And meaning influencers being paid by skin whitening brands to promote their products on Instagram. Yeah. Like models and influencers, I guess like some of these people were doing this professionally and it wasn't just like Instagram and stuff. Like they would do like catwalks and like kind of like more conventional and like kind of editorial and like more conventional, like model stuff, but also influencers as well. I talked to the former editor in chief of cosmopolitan in Sri Lanka and she went through this whole thing where, um, you know, she was sent skin whitening products and basically threatened with losing her job if she didn't endorse them. And she was like a conscientious objector to this category of products. And, um, and she is light skinned herself, I think. So like, it was interesting to me because it was like, it was not just a case of this multinational brand not listening to her, but it was a case of them actively applying pressure if she didn't comply. And I think that kind of stuff is really destructive. And it's, it's hard for me to believe that brands don't know that this kind of stuff is, is happening. I think. What does the like consumer protesting look like in this issue specifically? I mean, I'm just kind of trying to draw some, uh, see if there's any parallels between what happened with people with darker skin in like the U S and like Western markets really like being vocal about makeup companies not having like a dark enough shades and like we've seen like that has been super effective Uh, brands have really stepped up and tried to do better are there any like similar kind of conversations happening and like how are the consumers speaking to brands about this yeah it was interesting to me in Sri Lanka like there were so many people who told me that like these conversations have obviously been going on for a long time but like a lot of people said the the Black Lives Matter movement actually revitalized some of these questions about inclusivity and beauty. So I think it is going on, but it's just like, it's a different frame because like, I think the questions in the US are sort of less about skin whitening and more about inclusivity. Like you want different shades and stuff like that. So what you're asking these companies to do is just to add, you're not asking them to do away with the line of products that is extremely profitable for them and that they would lose out on by doing away with it. So I think, I guess like for me as an outsider, that seems to be kind of a tougher ask. And I have to say, like, from the company's perspectives, like, there is a huge demand for these products. And that's what the company said. They were like, you know, we're giving people what they want. Mm -hmm. I think what's not acknowledged is kind of like their role in also creating that demand. I know um, that the article you wrote that sort of created this conversation and this this interview was about three months ago. Have you heard from any of your sources or anyone you've spoken to how, if at all, things have changed in those three months? Yeah, definitely. So of the like, like the big skincare companies that are making skin whitening products globally, these are like the biggest producers in the world. You have Procter & Gamble, Johnson & Johnson, Unilever and L'Oreal. And I believe three out of four of them have taken some measures to kind of pull back from their association with skin lightening products, right? Either rebranding, which is what Unilever did, or kind of doing away with certain lines, lines of these products. And I think that this is, to me, it's pretty clearly uh, a result of the Black Lives Matter movement and the pressure that it has put on brands to actually think about these issues of um, racial sensitivity and inclusivity. Yeah, I love it. I think, I mean, the sort of upside of increased 
transparency that brands are forced to have due to like the comment section and people being, you know, call out culture, so to speak. Like the benefit is that brands can't, you know, essentially what what you had sort of discovered on social media, like standing in solidarity with the black community while selling a skin lightener on the other like that. Increasingly, that's going to be just like not possible. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. Yeah. Are you keeping tabs on any emerging stories internationally that affect the beauty industry that we should be aware of? Not particularly, but the follow-up story that I did about Unilever in Sri Lanka and the pressure that it was putting on um, on models and influencers, that came out of a tip that I got after the first story. I never would have found out about that if I hadn't just heard that this, this thing was happening in Sri Lanka, which is, of course, a small country very far from uh, where these brands are headquartered. So, I mean, I am very interested in this idea that cosmetics companies are pressuring models and influencers to treat their products in a certain way, to endorse products that they don't agree with for ethical reasons. I think to like for me, like as a reporter that's done a lot of work on human rights, it's sort of like it's that very classic story of um, a big, you know, multinational. It's David and Goliath, but it's also about like, you know, it's like if you've seen the film, The Constant Gardener or um, other, you know, there, there are so many stories of multinational companies that go into the global south and they behave in ways that are kind of unethical. And like they do things that they would never do back home. But because it's it's in this place that's subject to like so much less scrutiny, um, you know, from the media and, you know, from from kind of like other like from regulators and stuff like that, they feel at more at liberty to be able to do these things. And that was like exactly what was happening in Sri Lanka and everyone could see it. And like, um, you know, when I talk to people, they, they like, it, it stunned me because if this kind of thing were happening in the U S like if influencers were being strong armed by companies to endorse products that I don't know, were, were cruel to animals or were damaging to the environment or something, it would be a big news story. But because it happens, this kind of thing is happening in Sri Lanka. Um, you know, it takes years before anyone even finds out about it. And in this case, it was um, Unilever had, literally apologized in an email for taking these actions and still nobody had found out about it, right? Um, So I'm really interested in knowing if things like this are happening in other parts of the world, uh, especially in places like West Africa, um, in Southeast Asia. These are also regions where skin lightening products are are really popular, um, but, um, you know, probably less scrutinized by regulators compared to the US and Europe. So where can people find you to give you tips? I am on Twitter at M-E-G-H-A-R-A, or you can, the best way is really to get me by email. Uh, it's my first name dot last name at buzzfeed.com. And we will um, include links to your various social and your email um, with your permission on the episode description so that people can tip you and you can continue to do this reporting. Because I think it's it's important to keep the beauty industry accountable throughout the world, right? For sure. So I got a new face device, mm-hmm. which is a microcurrent at home microcurrent device. It's like a little handheld plastic cartridge handle with, with like two silver orbs dots. on top. Yeah. yeah. And then the microcurrent travels through and I don't have an electrical outlet in my bathroom. So I have it sitting on my nightstand and it's little like cradle that it charges on because I do it in bed. What what is it supposed to do? It, it runs microcurrents through the tissue in in your face and neck. 
And I think the, the idea is that it's, it's like working out those muscles. So part of me thinks it's kind of just a gimmick, like those machines that you see in like vintage, like film clips of women on the like shaker machines. Yeah. Like the road with, to like, Wellville style. Yeah. Yeah. So it feels a little bit like that, but I think it's working. I think I look great. Um, I've used it for twice. My housekeeper came though and cleaned my apartment. And when I came home at, you know, and I was enjoying my space and I looked on my nightstand and it, I noticed she hadn't like touched that night. Normally she like organizes she probably, everything. She thought it was a vibrator. I knew, that's exactly what I thought. <laughs> I'm so embarrassed. So I want to text her right now and be like, Gina, I just want you to know that was for my face. My product of the week is a little disclaimer. It's kind of, I'm a little mansplaining, but my product of the week is Etsy. And do you know why? As everyone who listens to this podcast know, I am going to be a father in the spring, and I've been sort of figuring out how do we decorate the nursery, how are we going to dress this baby, and I figured out that basically everything you could ever want or want to create is available through Etsy. I found a person in Morocco who works with her mother and hand weaves rugs to any dimension, to any design, with any color that you want. And she'll like send you pictures of the uh, yarn that she's using. And she'll send you pictures like, do what do you want it to be dots? Do you want it to be lines? Yada, yada, yada. And we'll ship it to you in like four to eight weeks. I also had this idea that because baby clothes are so expensive and like a lot of them are really prim and proper and kind of fussy that if I just bought vintage like Scandinavian and Liberty of London fabric on Etsy, I could send it to a seamstress who could create some dresses and like overalls and like bloomers for me to dress my baby in. And I found like there, you can buy like tons of vintage dead stock fabric. You can buy anything. Nick, you you want sound like Etsy. a Victorian era housewife. <laughs> <laughs> like, I need to go, I need to go procure some fabrics and have them made. Into, and then, so and then stop by fabrics. the seamstress. <laughs> I'm going to, I found a seamstress in LA. I'm, I'm buying the fabric on Etsy. I've got a couple people in Morocco weaving a rug, which I love because it's like also just like people making these things with love. And like, I told them that it was for my daughter's nursery. And, and they're like, and Ooh, they're, we're going to put extra love into it. Yeah. And so I love, I love like, you know, supporting artisans and stuff like that. You should totally get those women to make a supreme Moroccan rug and then you can turn a profit. They can literally do anything and it's really reasonably priced. And I'm going to wait until I get the rug to shout out the Etsy handle just in case there's any issues. But just <laughs> Etsy, man, can't beat it. So that is it for this week's episode of Eyewitness Beauty. There will be don't you worry, another episode next week. Thank you for listening to this one, though, and for your questions for last week's Q&A episode. Annie, what do you got? I just have a note for our listeners to please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps the show. And we're doing great. So thank you guys so much for your support so far. And you can also follow us on Instagram at eyewitnessbeauty, and you can email us at hi at eyewitnessbeauty.com. Eyewitness Beauty is lovingly produced by Jessamine Molly of Seaplane Armada. Our art is by Simon Abronowitz, and our theme music is by Danny Present. Production assistance was provided by Alicia Bansell. So thank you, Alicia. We'll be back next week with another brand new episode. So we'll talk to you then. Ciao for now. 
Bellissimo.